26 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus spoke the Greek words, Ego imi, literally, I am, I am. Of these, seven times he spoke the word, followed by a predicate, I am the, in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. In John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In John 10, verse 9, I am the gate or the door. In John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. In John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. In John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection. Now this sentence structure, ego imi, I am, I am, is very rare and unique. In fact, the only other place it's used in the Bible is in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, where God commissions Moses from the burning bush to return to Egypt to lead the Israelites out of captivity or slavery. When Moses asked God what he should say, who he should say has sent him, God replies in Exodus 3 and verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. In the Hebrew, Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord. In the Greek, it is ego imi, I am, I am. The same exact words that Jesus uttered here in the Gospel of John. Jesus was undoubtedly claiming to be Yahweh, ego imi, the one and only, I am, I am. Well, let's begin this morning's lesson by looking at the scripture together. Before we work our way through these verses in John 15, let's pause and ask Yahweh, I am, to speak to us clearly from his word, the Bible. Would you pray with me? Yahweh, I am. Speak to us again this morning from your word. Open our eyes that we would see. Open our ears that we could hear. Open our minds so that we can understand. And open our hearts that we would receive this word, this truth that the seed would be planted and produce fruit in our lives for your glory. We pray in the name of I Am. Amen. I am the true vine, Jesus says in verse 1. Literally, The Greek reads, the vine, the true one, I am, I am. Actually, chronologically, this is the seventh and final I am statement by Jesus. After studying the first four statements in order from John chapters 6 through 10, I decided to take this one in John 15 out of order so that we could end the series in John 11 on Easter Sunday with I am the resurrection. So before we work our way verse by verse through John 15, verses 1 through 8, we need to understand a bit of the context of today's text, because a lot has happened between where we were last Sunday in John 10 and where we are today in John 15. The setting for John 15 is Thursday night of Passion Week, 
the last night of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, all the events in John chapters 13 through 17 take place on this night before Jesus' crucifixion. In John 13, Jesus gathers with the twelve in the upper room where He eats the Last Supper, the Passover, with them. After washing their feet, He shocks the apostles by announcing that one of them will betray Him. After indicating that it was Judas, He dismisses Judas to go and make arrangements for His infamous deed. And chapter 13 ends with Jesus predicting that even Peter would deny Him three times before the rooster crowed at sunrise the next day. In John 14, Jesus comforts the remaining eleven, making His sixth I Am statement in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Now we'll be studying that I Am next Sunday. The chapter continues with Jesus promising His apostles the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And then chapter 14 ends with Jesus' words in verse 31. Come now, let us leave. Let's leave this upper room, in other words. And from the accounts in the other Gospels, we understand that Jesus and the eleven sang a hymn together, left the upper room, cutting across Jerusalem, heading east. They would have passed through the interior valley gate and Holda gate before exiting through the main wall at the Golden Gate. With the temple rising over the walls of Jerusalem directly behind them, they made their way northeast on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, they undoubtedly came upon a grape arbor or a small vineyard, and Jesus, being the master teacher, used that opportunity to teach them an object lesson. Which brings us to John 15 and verse 1. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. I am the true vine. Again, literally the vine, the true one. I am, I am. You see, Jesus' emphasis here is on true. As contrasted, of course, with false. So there is a false vine. Yes, Israel, Judaism. In fact, several times in the Old Testament, this same word picture of vine and gardener is used. But in that case in the Old Testament, Israel is the vine. And a corrupt vine at that. For instance, Psalm 80 is a lament. A cry for God's deliverance because He had abandoned His vine, Israel. In verse 7, the psalmist pleads, Restore us, God Almighty, that we may be saved. Verses 8 and 9 continues, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Now what's he talking about here? The Exodus. God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt and their settlement in the promised land. Then in verses 12 through 14, the psalmist laments, Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. What's he talking about here? Israel's fall. Their sin and God's judgment of it by allowing Assyria and Babylon to conquer and take the Jews into captivity and slavery. 
Now Psalm 80 ends with these words in verses 17 and 18. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Don't miss those words. The man at your right hand, the son of man. Who's the psalmist talking about prophetically? The Messiah. Who's going to save God's vineyard? Jesus. Now Isaiah 5 talks even more plainly about Israel, the false vine. Look at verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. By the way, the Hebrew word here, bad, indicates wild or sour, literally sour grapes. Isaiah 5 continues, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, God says. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then Isaiah concludes in verse 7, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And so Israel, Judaism, is the false vine yielding bad fruit, sour grapes. And in contrast, Jesus says here in John 15 and verse 1, I am the true vine, implying that he is now the real, the genuine Israel. He is the main vine planted firmly in the ground through which all of the vineyard's life flows. It is through this true vine that nourishment flows in order that the branches may bear fruit. Notice that verse 1 concludes, My father is the gardener. The Greek word here refers to the vine dresser or husbandman, or in our modern day terminology, the vintner or vineron. Now here in the 21st century, the vine dresser or the vintner often has a graduate degree in viticulture, the science of growing, nurturing, and harvesting grace. But obviously God, the Creator, knows anything and everything there is to know about vineyards, about caring for vines and branches. And the picture that Jesus paints is that God the Father, the gardener, is the one who is in control. This vineyard, this vine and branches, are His very own. Which leads us to verse 2. Look at it in your Bible. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now as we'll see in a little bit, we are the branches. And as we attempt to grasp what Jesus is teaching here, it's important to note there's really only two kinds of branches. Branches that bear no fruit and branches that bear fruit. Notice what happens to the branches that bear no fruit. 
At the beginning of verse 2 it says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Verse 6, I think, explains it even further. A branch that is thrown away and withers, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, I realize there's a lot of debate around this issue, but I believe that Jesus is referring to non-Christians here. They may be believers. Hear me on this. They may be believers, but they are not disciples. They are professors of faith, but they are not possessors of faith. They may appear to be attached to the vine, but they are not actually attached. If they were truly Christ followers, if they were truly saved, they would in fact produce fruit because each and every true branch that remains in the true vine produces fruit. No exceptions. But in this case, there's no fruit whatsoever. A sure indication that these so-called branches were never really attached to the vine. From a vintner's point of view, these are either sucker branches or deadwood branches. And every gardener knows that suckers and deadwood have no purpose except to hinder fruit-bearing branches. And so God, the vine dresser, the gardener, cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's the word picture that we read about in Psalm chapter 80 and in Isaiah chapter 5 that we read earlier. I think in its immediate context, think about this with me, in its immediate context, he's talking here about Judas Iscariot. Do you ever think about that? Because I'm thinking these apostles are going... What just happened? I thought he was one of us. And Jesus is now helping them to understand what just happened. In the broader context, this is a picture of anyone today who might outwardly profess faith, but doesn't inwardly possess faith. For as we saw in our last lesson, those who say, Lord, Lord, they talk the talk, but... They don't do what Jesus says. They don't walk the walk. Pretense. Hypocrisy. Religion. Branches that bear no fruit. Now on the other hand, there are branches that do bear fruit. So what does the the gardener, the vine dresser, God, do with these fruit-bearing branches? Well, the end of verse 2 answers, He prunes so that it will be even more Fruitful. Interesting, this word prune, translated clean, in verse 3. That's a common term in gardening. In viticulture, the husbandman will prune a grapevine in four ways. I put it there in your notes. First is pinching. It was done by hand or with a small knife or pruning scissors. You'd cut off the new shoots or the unwanted Ys in a branch in order to redirect the growth energy back to root development and branch health. The second was topping. That was done by sickle or shear. Get rid of the top growth that would steal the nutrients from the undergrowth where the fruit is actually produced. Then there was thinning. That was done carefully by hand, again with a small knife or pruning scissors. Thinning out the branches and leaves to allow the sun and the fresh air to get to the fruit. And then there was cutting. We already talked about that. It was to get rid of the suckers and the deadwood, again to promote the growth and the health of the vine and of good fruit-bearing branches. 
So why does the vine dresser prune the fruit-bearing branches in this way? Jesus answers, so that it will be even more fruitful. More fruitful. Later in verses 5 and 8, Jesus uses the terminology much fruit. Now if you haven't picked up on it yet, let me point out that the bottom line in our text today is fruit bearing. God, the gardener, is looking for fruitfulness. He desires each and every branch, that's us, in the vine, Jesus, to produce as much fruit as possible. And so he prunes us. He disciplines us in order that we may produce abundant, overflowing fruit in our lives. And Jesus continues in verse 3. Look at it with me. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now at this point, Jesus turns to his 11 remaining apostles. Again, Judas Iscariot, the fruitless one, has already been cut off. Okay, And he assures the eleven that they are indeed clean, pruned. How? Because of the word I have spoken to you. Now we'll revisit that in just a bit, but let's keep moving along. Verses 4 and 5. Look at it with me. Remain in me, Jesus says, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I don't know that there's really a whole lot I could add right there. Those verses are pretty self-explanatory. The word remain, the Greek word meno, means to continue, to abide in. Jesus uses the word, interestingly, five times here in verses 4 and 5. Eleven times altogether in John chapter 15. The point is, as branches, we must remain, we must continue, we must abide in the vine, Jesus, in order to produce fruit. A branch will not, cannot, in fact, produce fruit on its own, unattached to the vine. That's just stupid. To even think that. I mean, can you see this branch over here? I'm going to bear fruit on my own. No, it's not. In Jesus' own words, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. That brings us to verse 6. Look at it with me. If you do not remain in me, Jesus says, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burn. Now that's pretty final, isn't it? Yes. Thrown into the fire and burn. The finality of judgment upon those who superficially attach themselves to the vine, who only go through the motions like Judas Iscariot did. For such pretenders who never actually abide in the vine, who never actually become disciples of Jesus Christ, the story of their lives does not end well. <laughs> thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7. Look at it with me. Jesus says, If you remain in me, my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? In verse 16, Jesus put it this way. Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Oh, really? Did Jesus mean that? 
Yeah, if we understand the promise in its proper context, yes, the disciple who is remaining and abiding in Jesus and His Word, and Jesus and His Word is remaining and abiding in him or her, that disciple can ask for whatever he or she wishes, and it will be given to them. How could Jesus say that? Because he understood that a person who is truly attached to the vine, genuinely in him and in his word, is never going to ask for anything that is contrary to that vine-branch relationship. He or she is living at the very center of God's will, and therefore the whatever you wish is going to be at the very center of God's will and purpose. that make sense? Which brings us to our final verse today, verse 8. Look at it with me. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. One for sure way to bring glory to God is to produce much fruit. As we're remaining and abiding in the vine, Jesus, the natural outgrowth of that relationship is fruit. Much fruit. The gardener, the vine dresser, husband and vendor, is glorified as we produce fruit. In fact, fruit, much fruit, Jesus says, is the actual proof of our discipleship. This is how we know for certain that we are indeed saved. This is how we can validate that we, the branches, are truly uh, attached to the vine. In Jesus' words, bear much fruit, showing or proving yourselves to be my disciples. Fruit. Well, that's a look at the Scripture. Now, what lessons can we learn from our study together today? I am the true vine, Jesus says here in John 15. Again, literally the vine, the true one. I am, I am. As we've worked our way through John 15 verses 1 through 8 today, it seems to me that there are three key questions that we need to ask ourselves in self-examination in light of today's text. Number one, am I abiding in the vine? Am I abiding in the vine? Back to verses 1 and 2 again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Again, the question is, am I abiding in the vine? Am I securely attached to, am I remaining and continuing in Jesus? I believe we must not skim over this question too quickly. Because if nothing else, Jesus' words here in John 15 indicate that it's possible to appear to be in without actually being so. That it is possible to look and act like a branch and upon further examination not actually be a branch. (laughs) There is a danger of being a sucker branch that bears no fruit. Vineyards are full of them. My rose bushes are full of them until I just trim them. (laughs) Churches are full of them. They look healthy, all green and covered with leaves, but there's no fruit. They, They go to church, they read their Bible, they give, they pray, they serve. They may even appear to produce fruit, but it is only bad fruit, sour grapes. It isn't genuine or authentic. They've got... Religion, but they don't have relationship. 
Again, Judas Iscariot was like that. He was numbered with the twelve, Scripture says, but he never was really a true disciple. He faked everybody out. But God. I read a story this past week of a small town in Texas where over 25 years ago, the school burned to the ground with the loss of more than 200 lives. All because the old buildings didn't have a sprinkler system, it seems. After the initial shock had passed, the school was rebuilt and the school district called in the foremost company in fire prevention to install a sprinkler system in the new buildings. And when this new school was open for public inspection, the school board parents and students were so proud of this new state-of-the-art sprinkler system throughout their facilities. And the school operated without incident for over 20 years until just recently they needed to remodel and expand. And as the work was begun... They made a startling discovery. Over 20 years ago when the sprinkler system was installed, it was never connected to the water supply. Can you imagine? But what a word picture. Oh, look at our sprinkler system. Isn't it beautiful? But it's not even connected to the source. Their fire extinguishing equipment was entirely useless. Think about that one. Read with me 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 15. Let's read this out loud together. Check up on yourselves. Are you really Christians? Do you pass the test? As you abide in Christ, do you feel Christ's presence and power more and more within you? Or are you just pretending to be Christians when actually you aren't at all? See, that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's why I believe we have to ask ourselves the question, am I abiding in the vine? And how do we know for sure that we're abiding in the vine? As Paul put it here in 1 Corinthians 3, do you feel Christ's presence and power more and more within you? Simply put, check for fruit. Check for fruit. So the first key question we need to ask ourselves in self-examination is, am I abiding in the vine? Number two, am I producing good fruit? Am I producing good fruit? Again, the bottom line in John 15 is all about fruit. Fruitfulness. Producing fruit. This fruit comes, by the way, as a byproduct of abiding in the vine. Some of you need to look up here because I need to say that again. You need to hear this. This fruit comes about as a byproduct of abiding in the vine. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we get all stressed out and we grit our teeth and we begin to think and act like we're the ones who produce the fruit. I've got to produce fruit! <laughs> no. We're the ones who abide. Our focus is to remain and continue in Jesus and in His Word. And it is in and through that abiding love relationship that God produces the fruit. Sometimes we get the cart before the horse. 
that make sense? <coughs> My fear was I could talk about fruitfulness today and everybody's going to go home and go, I've got to be more fruitful. I've got to be more fruitful. I've got to be more fruitful. No, you don't. You've got to abide in Jesus. Now, the obvious question at this point is, what exactly is this fruit that we are to produce? The Bible indicates two distinct different kinds of fruit. First, there's people fruit. People fruit, that is other disciples, other Christians. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus commanded us, Go then to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Simply put, as disciples, we are to reproduce ourselves. We are to make new disciples, to bring others into a saving and abiding relationship with Jesus. Folks, that's nothing more than the universal law of reproduction at work. God set that law in motion clear back at the creation when he said in Genesis chapter 1, let the land produce vegetation, notice seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that produce fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and then God said to humankind, be fruitful and increase in number. You see, in the physical creation, plants, animals, birds, fish, even humankind, God decreed that everything should, that He created should reproduce according to their various kinds. Now, I don't need to give you a sex education lesson this morning. I mean, it isn't difficult for us to understand this. Apples produce apples. Cows produce cows, trout produce trout, humans produce humans. The universal law of reproduction. But did you know that also applies in the spiritual realm? Disciples produce disciples. Christ followers produce other Christ followers. People fruit. And the second kind of fruit that we produce is character fruit. Character fruit. Let's read Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23 out loud together. Would you read this with me? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's a good list. As we're abiding in the vine, as we remain and continue in Jesus and His Word, the Holy Spirit who lives in us will produce this kind of character fruit in our lives. In other words, we'll become more and more Christ-like in our character and in our behavior. It's called character fruit. So what exactly is this fruit that we're to produce? Both people fruit, other Christians, and character fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. If we are truly a branch connected to the vine, we will see people coming to know and follow Jesus Christ through us. And others will in fact take notice of our Christ-like behavior and character. Fruit. Am I producing good fruit? Now there's a kind of second part to this I want to talk about, and that has to do with the quantity and the quality of the fruit. So let's look at the quantity first of all. Once again, Jesus instructs us in John 15 verses 5 and 8, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Don't miss those phrases, much fruit. How much is much fruit? It's more than you got. It's more than you got. As we learn back in verse 2, the gardener God is wanting us to be even more fruitful. 
See, the point is, we must never, ever be satisfied with our productivity. We can never be content with past fruit, nor can we be comfortable with the present fruit that is in our lives. We must be more fruitful. There must be much fruit in our lives, the quantity of our fruit. But there's a flip side to that, and that's the quality. The quality of our fruit. This wasn't in today's text, but down later in John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will what? Yeah, fruit that will last. In other words, good fruit versus bad fruit. Real fruit versus sour grapes. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. The quality of our fruit. wish I could say more, but time won't allow So the second key question we need to ask ourselves in self-examination is, am I producing good fruit? Number three, am I allowing God to prune me? Am I allowing God to prune me? Now once again, Jesus teaches at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3, every branch that does not that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean, pruned, because of the word I have spoken to you. Again, that causes us to ask the question, am I allowing God to prune me? As we learned a moment ago, a vine dresser will prune a branch by pinching, topping, thinning, Gutting. <coughs> and so the question is, are we allowing God to do that in our lives? Do we trust God where He chooses to prune us? No, God, not there. I don't want to give that up. I like that little shoot. It's all green and pretty. Are we yielding? Are we surrendering to His pruning process? Now the big question here is, how does God prune? How does God discipline us? And basically the Bible teaches in two ways. First, through affliction. Through affliction. Hebrews 12, verses 7-11 through 11 puts it this way. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we all had human parents who disciplined us and we respected them for us. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, as God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. Notice, it produces fruit of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So God, the gardener, the vine dresser, uses affliction. We don't like to talk about that much. God uses pain. God uses trials and tests and hard times and troubles and sickness and hardship and grief and disappointment and unemployment and persecution. And on and on we could go. God uses those things to prune us. Affliction. You ought to be glad you have that affliction because you know what that says? God loves you. 
You're one of His. But there's another side to this. Through affliction, with the Word. you got to hear this. With the Word. Jesus said in verse 3, you are already clean because of the Word. Let's read Hebrews 4 verse 12 out loud together. Would you read this with me? His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. Boy, isn't that true? God's word, the Bible, is the pruning knife with the word. So how does God prune or discipline us putting it together? Through affliction with the Word. Through affliction with the Word. Now I found this picture. That's actually an ancient, dating back to someplace in the 1st or 2nd century, pruning knife. It's what they look like. And I wanted to put it up there because I wanted you to listen to what the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, It is the Word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him or her. Affliction is the handle of the knife, but the knife is the Word. Affliction makes us ready for the knife, to feel the Word of God. Affliction is the handle and the occasion, but the actual pruning is the Scripture, the knife that cuts. Why? So that we will bear more fruit. Boy, I wish I could say more there, but we've got to go on. The third question we need to ask ourselves in self-examination is, am I allowing God to prune me? Am I yielding to His disciplining process? Am I allowing him to... See, I said I wasn't going to say more. Here I am. Am I allowing him to pinch off? To top? To thin? (laughs) To cut? Out of my life? I am the true vine. Literally. The vine, the true one I am, am. This morning from John 15, we've taken a closer look at some reasons from, John, from Jesus' word picture of vine, gardener, and branches. Some lessons we can learn. Basically, when all is said and done, I, again, I still think this lesson is all about fruitfulness. Being fruitful as we're abiding, remaining, and continuing in Jesus, the vine. Am I abiding in the vine? Am I producing good fruit? Am I allowing God to prune me? Let's wrap up today's lesson by reading Colossians 1 and verse 10 out loud together. Would you read this with me? Live the kind of lives that prove you belong to the Lord. Then you will want to please Him in every way as you grow in producing every kind of good fruit. Yeah. I'm the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Let's pray. Father, thank You for teaching us again today. So much for us to learn. These I am statements are so full, so packed full of so much that we need to get our arms around. Teach us today. Help us now to ask ourselves these questions. 
Not to just leave the lesson here today, but to take it with us. Holy Spirit, convict us again and again in the next day, the next week, to ask ourselves, am I abiding in the vine? Am I producing good fruit? Am I allowing God to prune me? Help us to live this out. To flesh it out. To be the branches bearing fruit. Much fruit. Good fruit that will last for you and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.